HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Beard Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're doing a special pre-recording at the offices of Be United in Oxford, Connecticut, where they've installed a special new brewery, OEC, the Order of the Eccentric Boilers. I'll be talking with John Lundbaum, Ben Neidhart, and Matthias Neidhart, uh, who are the core of Be United and the OEC. Um, thanks to our sponsors, GreatBrewers.com. And again, this is a special recording we're doing in Oxford, Connecticut. We'll be kicking off July, Good Beer Month, uh, when you hear the show. So this is our first special show of, of July, Good Beer Month. So here we are. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio. Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. All right, so we got John Lumbaum, Ben, and, and Mateus from Be United and uh, the OEC. So, John, give us a little background. Um, you know, you've been with Be United a long time. You have some importing some of our, the favorite beers that, that we drink at Jimmy's Number 43. Tell us a little bit about what's up here in Oxford, Connecticut. Sure. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, good to be here. Um, yeah, I've been with Be United, I think, about seven years now. Um, and we built uh, this facility, geez, what was it, five years ago? Yeah, five years ago we built this facility. And it was really made a big difference in sort of our efficacy and sort of how we could do business, how we could fulfill orders, and how we could really make sure that our beer was um, being stored in appropriate conditions. And then since then, um, we've expanded to have our tank container program, our uh, barrel maturation and aging program, and now our new small uh, experimental brewery. I have to say that this is not what I expected. I mean, I expected a warehouse with, you know, kegs and, and bottles sitting around. And I've heard about your, your, your tank program, and, and now you have the new small brewery. Um, Mateus, tell us part of your vision, because this, is, you're, this isn't just a typical, you know, importer's wholesale warehouse. Um, when you look at Be United, we started in 1995 or so. For our company, it has always been around um, highest level of aroma and flavor complexity. This is... This is our, our theme, this is our purpose, nothing else. And when you really, when you become serious about it, you, you have got to not only look at the different breweries and portfolios and brands that you bring in, but also you have got to look into every single step, how you, how you do business. How can you make sure that whatever you do gets to the consumer on the very highest level of flavor and aroma complexity? And like all the other importers, uh, at the beginning we had a third-party warehouse in New Jersey, and, and over time we realized this is not the quality we, we really need. Uh, so over time, we thought about um, establishing our own place up here, facility built into the ground to use a, a geothermal uh, temperature as well to, to minimize our f- use of fossil fuel. We installed our temperature control tank container concept because we truly believe that this is the, I shouldn't say the only way, but the best way to bring in very rare, very very flavorful beers on the highest level of their flavor aroma complexity. They are being kicked here. Uh, very many um, brews will go into um, re-fermentation in our warm room and, and then we ship it out to, to our customers across the country. We have complete control over uh, re-fermentation, about uh, control over the level of conditioning in, in, in the beer. Many of our breweries do not have any lab, any such um, facilities and tools to control it, so um, very important for us to do that. And, um, and again, when you look at flavors and aromas and highest level of it, then you really, every, everything you do, you have got to ask, is it, 
is it done in the best way possible or can we do much, much better? We have our, we established our own orchard, our own uh, horticultural area around here. We grow our own raspberries and, and, and spices and herbs and we build a small vineyard or so. Idea behind this is twofold. We want to, whenever we use it, uh, these fruits and berries and spices, um, we want to pick them, and 20 minutes later, we want to use it in, in our beers or in our cemetery project. This guarantees an unbelievable level of flavor and aroma complexity. Um, also, we want to cultivate, isolate and cultivate the, the wild yeast sitting on our fruits and on our berries. Um, so this is very local wild yeast strains that we, that we have started to isolate, to cultivate and, 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 and use in, in OEC, but also use in some of our cinematoil projects. Again, all driven by creating beers of incredible flavor, aroma, complexity. Now that, that, that's a great introduction. I, mean, I, I came here and, and, and Ben gave me a tour. So Ben, why don't you just walk us through what, what, what you see when you're here from the, the time we entered, you know, and, and the different rooms and, 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 like I say, projects that you have going on here. Well, so, so pretty much when you enter, you actually see the smallest part of the whole building is the, the office. We try and keep paperwork to a minimum, so <laughs> we jam it all in there in about a 1,000 square feet. But from there, it actually gets really exciting what we do. Uh, the, the first part is obviously a necessity whenever you're packaging kegs. It's just a keg cleaning and sorting room uh, where we make sure we clean kegs the first time. We always clean every keg twice to make sure it's clean since we do ship around, across the country and kegs take a long time to get back. From there, we go into a warehouse that's actually built 14 feet into the ground to really harness as much of the thermal energy we can so that the temperature inside the warehouse stays around 55 year-round with as little heating and cooling as possible. In the back of that warehouse, we have a vintage cellar, which is built totally underground, which stays the exact same temperature year-round, and that's about 3,500 square feet, and that's where we keep all the products for United International that we age when we get them. So we have things as old as from the lat one of the oldest brewings of Kurdish Russian Imperial style. We have one of their batches from 1983, which is actually only a year younger than I am. We also have the 1993. And from there on, we have other special items. We have all the JW Lee's Harvest Ale, the special editions matured in Lagavulin, and Calvados, and so forth, maturing in there. And we also have some... Uh, Still enough, the dull special reserve are maturing in there as well. And, and you know, going back, um, that having that courage going back to 83, and well, 83 and 93, and having Gale's Prize Old Ale back to 95, I mean, these are two of the great historic British beers of the last century that um, unfortunately the breweries no longer exist. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, the breweries, they really were purchase, purchased by larger breweries just to be shut down for competition's sake. And, you know, that kills these beautiful brands that are no longer around. And then from there, we, we go downstairs into a separate building, and this is where we do all the, all the packaging from the tank container project. We do the quality control there as well. We, we have an automatic cleaning system. We use mixing tanks to handle the, the various beers that we get. And beers range anywhere from being fully finished in terms of carbonated and just being ready to go into kegs to being unfinished, where where they're sent to us flat and the brewers spec the specific yeast they want pitched into them and the specific sugar that, that is to be added to the beer for, to produce a re-fermentation. So we, we, we have to transfer the beers out into tanks, we have to pitch the, and add the yeast into it, and we have to prime it with sugar. And from there we have to make sure it mixes up so it's 100% homogeneous, and then we fill it into kegs, and then it goes into a warm room to naturally carbonate the kegs from two to four weeks. Um, and as Matthias was mentioning, one great thing about having our orchard and our own facility here is lots of our brewmasters have specifications that the beers need to be dry hopped here before processing or dry herbed, even in the case of some Italian saisons. And it's great that our facility allows us to do that while leaving the most amount of that impact on the beverage. It's a very natural setting. I mean, we're, we're in the woods. There's dogs here. And, and, and it is kind of brilliant and, and almost obvious that you guys are building into the hill 
and using that, you know, the being, you know, you're 14 feet underground in the basement, so it's it's always going to stay a certain temperature, almost a perfect cellar temperature. Yeah, it's when when we have our brewmasters coming from around the world or so, they are totally stunned by it, and and they love it because historically this is exactly how breweries were built into the ground before you know our industrial revolution um, discovered the the um, energy and, and power. So so that's the only way before that in, before the mid 19th century for breweries to to brew and keep their beers somewhat controlled, temperature controlled is building their their cell building their their brew into the ground mostly in the Alps uh, because it was naturally cold up up high in the mountains. So so, so they are stunned by us basically replicating um, what history told them how it should be done. Uh, and obviously they're very, very excited about it uh, in terms of the high level of quality our operation is, 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 has been laid out. Um, and uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, 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 it's a great experience for them whenever they come. You know, Matthias, I want to take a step back. I mean, you, have, you import so many great beers, and, and many beer fans would know the names. What are some of the first uh, brands that you were importing when you got started? Well, we started with our, our German portfolio, and, and when we started 1995, again, our objective has always been and will always continue to be brains of high flavor, aroma, complexity. So the late Michael Jackson was really kind of our guide into the world of fantastic beers, and, and so um, in many discussions or so with Michael Jackson, we, we talked about uh, some of these extraordinary beers. So we started, obviously, with Schneider Brewery, the historic um, 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 founder or um, uh, person that rescued the, the wheat beer, uh, wheat, the wheat beer segment in, in, in Germany, Schneiderweise, Aventinus de Wheat Doublebock, which was created in 1907. We moved on to, to the, the classic smoke beer, Echtschlengele in Bamberg, uh, with the Mürzen, with the Helles, with the Urbock, an absolutely incredible portfolio. Um, moved into another style, very historic, uh, Berlinerweise. Um, and we added, meanwhile, um, Fritz Bream's uh, 1809 historic Berliner Weisse, Berliner Weisse interpretation from, from Guse Brewery in Leipzig, um, added Einbecker, Einbecker, May Urbock, Urbock Dunkel as really the classic uh, company that really established the, the Bock beer style. You know, when, I, when, I was, when I first had my first restaurant in the 90s, some of your beers were the beers that, that the only beers I sold. I used to always have Aventinus, I always had Einbecker too. Yep. So go, going back, I've, I've known your beers longer than I've known you. Yeah. And then we moved on to other countries. You know, we, 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 we discovered J.W. Lee's in Manchester, U, United Kingdom. They brewed a, a wonderful barley wine. They only brew it once a year in October with the first harvest of their floor-malted Mary's Order and, and the first harvest of the Ken Golding's uh, hops, and it's called J.W. Lee's Harvestdale, um, and, and uh, moved on to, to Carnegie Porter and Sinopikov Porter, two historic classic porters from the Baltic area. Um, and so we, we kept traveling around the world. Uh, ran into Kiyuchi Brewery in, 20, in two, around 2000 when he when this brewery appeared on our radar. He All of a sudden, his brains, he touched you know, Nest Weidel and Weizen, won numerous awards in international competition, even in Germany. Um, and that was stunning to us, and we had no idea about the brewery. So we contacted him, and he was extremely responsive. Um, within 24 hours, he emailed back and said, okay, let's meet. I flew to Japan to, uh, to, to Mido. It's about um, an hour north of uh, um, Tokyo. Um, tasted his brewery, learned about his family. A very, very old family in, in the sake business, over 180 years. Um, moved into the world of um, brewing in 1996 when the law in, in Japan changed. Um, and, and so we added Hitachino to our portfolio and um, added, obviously moved into, into Belgium, one of, in my opinion, one of the great, great gems in, in, in Belgium, Didole Chris, uh, Didole Brewers, one of the most extraordinary uh, uh, brewmasters there. He started in 1980. Uh, he joined our portfolio. Um, very historic, uh, Lambic blender, part of our portfolio, Hansen's. Uh, when we talked to John and C.D. Hansen's, so when they tell me about their father and grandfather and grand-grandfather when he started um, his business and first there were a brewery and then during World War II when all the equipment made of copper was confiscated by German Nazi um, they could not rebuild the brewery they started their lambic blending operation and so much history uh, it's just, just incredible. I mean, 
mean, it's amazing, and it's so so many. It's, I can't believe you have so many great breweries. You know that that you're importing. I mean, Ben, you you grew up with all these great beers, so you know. T- tell us a little bit what it was like growing up, being around great beers, and, and now what you're doing here, brewing your own beers, too. Well, when you're younger, you probably don't appreciate it as much as when you're older. So, you you know, even even though we were, I was always around great beer, like, and you hear all the stories behind it, but you you know you're, you're young, so some... Sometimes you're a little ignorant as well, <laughs> and so you don't you don't think about it as much, and then you don't realize it till a little bit later. It wasn't until like until I was like 22, 23 that I really started getting drinking more of them and really getting involved. I, I got involved in the company when I was uh, about 23, and then from there on, my interest in it really continued to build very much. So, and I and I particularly like the historic element of the things and and the things that were done to create complex beers, to create interesting beers that have really gone by the wayside through industrialization and commercialization. And what's great is that Be United has a lot of those beers that came up from the eras before that time that still continue to use those same production processes back then. So we're tasting some beers that, that here you have the United Importers and you also have OEC. Yeah. So tell us about OEC and, and quickly mention the beer that, that we're drinking. Okay, so... So OEC is our is our little eccentric brewery, and it stands for in in bad grammatical Latin. It stands for Order of the Eccentric Boilers, and it's a joke kind of. A, That's a great name. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a, a joke along the Monty Python st- style of old. Like it, it it has a seal like its own. Like it's this it's this eccentric order of people that are coming together to create really interesting products. And the reason we we say boilers at the end is because the actual last word coctores means boilers and what's interesting about it is before brewers knew anything about yeast even contributing or fermenting the beer they considered it to be boiling because it looks the same you know bubbles rising up everything is foaming it's the same as when you're heating things up and so they didn't know about yeast and so what they do is they brew and then they have in these pots and one pot would say would start boiling, and the other one wasn't. So they put them next to each other, so one the other one could learn how to boil, <laughs> you know. And so, so this is all about. There is a science to brewing, but there's also a lot of art, and I believe there's a lot of mysticism that makes it great. And that's what OEC is for. That's great. So, what, what's the first beer that we're tasting? So the first beer we're, we're tasting today is called Exilis. It's a 3.8 percent Berliner Stahlweisse. And so we use the traditional mashing technique that that they did. It's very similar to actually a lambic mash where you do a decoction pull three times. And it also uses a sour mash before then overnight. We do a little bit of hop steeping for the, for the actual brewing li- liquor before we start. Then we go and do a sour mash overnight. And then we do that turbid mashing. And then we, it's not boiled. It only goes into the brew kettle for 20 minutes at about 80 Celsius. And then it goes straight into the cool ship overnight. We don't pitch, we don't pitch yeast till the following day. This is a really great beer, Ben. Well, hey, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Hi, I'm Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct. Do you love us? Do you really? Do you count on us for real food news and content? Because we need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a nonprofit organization, which means we depend on underwriting, grants, and the support of members like you to keep broadcasting. Help keep our voice alive. Visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org and click the Donate button today. We promise to never stop in our mission to create a world that's more sustainable, equitable, and delicious by expanding the way eaters think about food. Thanks for listening, and thanks for showing your support. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's July 1st. It's the kickoff for July Good Beer Month. And we spent last week out in uh, Oxford, Connecticut with Be United at their new OEC, Order of the Eccentric Boilers, their mini brewery. I got to sit with Matthias and Ben Needhart and John Lumbaum talking about how they got started importing beer. And, and now they're uh, also making their own beer out here in Connecticut. So here we go we'll Go back to uh, Ben Needhart. Uh, he, he poured a Berlin Weiss beer that he's made here in Connecticut. Hey, Ben. Hey. So a little bit more information as we were winding down the last segment. So it goes in the cool ship overnight. We just open the windows and the doors, and it, we just let it cool naturally. And that's why we, can, we kind of jokingly call this a semi-spontaneous fermentation. 
of course you can either be spontaneous or not, but in this case we're somewhere in between. So we let the wild yeast settle naturally, and then in the morning we actually pitch some of the yeast into the cool ship. And that yeast has a little bit of lactobacillus, which traditionally creates the sourness in Berliner Weisse. And then it goes into an open fermentation for about three to four days, and then from there into maturation, and then it's naturally keg-conditioned. I'll tell you, this is almost like a mad scientist's place. I mean, you've got, you started bringing in tankfuls of beer when most people are, are, are just sending kegs around the world, and um, you're, you're, you're doing second fermentation sometimes here, you're, you're, you're kegging, you're even hand-bottling. I mean, what, what else can you guys do? I mean, this is an amazing facility. Well, I guess that's why we started brewing, right? <laughs> we, we had the other stuff, so let's <laughs> decide to do that. But no, it's interesting because we've actually come from, from the opposite spectrum. You know, usually you, you move in from home brewing or so, but we're actually, we came from the packaging end and quality control side of things to then doing the Zimatory project where we age various, pro- various of our different Bionita products in, in barrels from all over the world. You know, we've red wine barrels from South Africa. We have wine barrels from Channing Daughters in, in Long Island, New York, and Ransom Spirits out in Portland, Oregon, which kind of combines this kind of worldwide network of various products and barrels and wood to, to make really interesting products. And then from there, we've gone to actually creating some base beers as well. And once again, OEC stands for, you know, the eccentric boilers. I mean, these, this is... This is pretty eccentric stuff, pretty old techniques, lost techniques, crazy stuff, and we really have fun with that. And you know what? One of the really amazing things about working for Be United is the, in all seriousness, the honest, really push for knowledge and the push for education. You know, starting as importers who wanted to bring the great beers of the great historic beers of the world to the U.S., that pushed us to learn more about really the quality control end of things, which pushed us to develop the tank container program, which pushed us to sort of develop this barrel maturation and learn about that. And, you know, this Berliner Weiss we're having now is really a wonderful, wonderful beer. And the main reason we're able to make sort of this complicated, interesting beer style in such a spectacular way is the knowledge that we get from people like Professor Fritz Brain is really learning from the brewmasters we work with and really making it a two-way street where we can give them feedback and they can give us feedback and we all sort of learn and elevate the game together. It's really important to us as well. well. It is the perfect beer that you're Berlin advice. I mean, it's, it's really hot and humid today. It, is, it feels like summer and uh, I'm going to be here all day drinking with you guys. But so, John, you, you, you're also, I know you guys are distributing around the country, but you're saying you spend a lot of time in Texas. What products are, are, are you guys selling in the Texas market? Uh, yeah, we started selling, Texas was sort of the last um, frontier for us in the States. Uh, the State laws around um, alcohol, but very specifically around beer, make it very difficult to do business in Texas. Um, however, we started last year, and things are going great. There's some really wonderful accounts down there, a lot of obviously great consumers, but the, in general, the response from the market's been really strong. Um, it has been sort of a gradual rollout because, again, there's a lot of laws that make things very complicated. What are there now? Well, so the number one brand down there is by far is Hitachino. Um, it was one of the first breweries we got approved, and it was um, a brewery that the market was really looking for, and so that's really taken off. Um, also, BFM from Switzerland has been doing, um, I don't want to say surprisingly well, but uh, for the price point, they've really been embraced by Texas, which is great. Um, more recently, we just got the Wild Beer Company from Somerset, England approved, and that people are getting very, very excited about those beers. Um, but I think we have about 12... Yeah, Schlegel. Schlegel was one of the keys. I mean, we, um, there were two reasons why we, why we had not gone into Texas for many, many years. One was, um, as John mentioned, um, the legal environment in Texas is extremely difficult. It's extremely expensive to do business in, in, in Texas for... for if you deal, when you deal with, with beer, very, very expensive. And the other thing is we were never, I was never sure whether Texas was ready. And I never, we never push our products into the market. We wait for, for people to call us. And, and, and about two years ago, 18 months ago, we felt like um, there's more and more demand coming. So then we decided to go forward. And Echt Schlengel, smoke beer, obviously, 
everybody wanted to have it. I said, obviously, Texas and, and, and the food they are enjoying there and, and a lot of sm- sm- smoked ham and smoked, and, and smoked food items is a natural em- environment for Echelenkla. So Echelenkla is, is, is there. Um, we, um, we also launched our various um, French cider portfolios there, very, very successful. And we do it step by step. And... Um, and the market is is uh, very very embracing uh, um, uh, embracing of our portfolio. John, just what are some of the top accounts that you're selling to, in, like Houston or Austin, Texas? Um, the number one uh, sort of on-premise account in Houston is the Hay Merchants. Uh, it's more, you know, there's there there are some very very good beer bars. I think people more people than not would say the Hay Merchants is sort of the premier craft beer bar in Houston. Um, although there's also you know, a number of other great accounts as well. I um, mean, Austin. Austin's a, a bit of a different situation. I mean, Houston's 11 million people. Austin is about 900,000. It's a very small town with, I think, about 25 breweries. Austin is very dense, and people are uh, you got a, very. A couple accounts that. Well, you can in, interestingly in enough, the number one purchaser of United Beers in Austin is Jester King. Um, you know, which is a wonderful farmhouse brewery sort of outside of Austin. But they buy and sell a ton of Bee United product, which is oh, so uh, they really make their own beer and they're, they're also selling their products. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Well, going back to the, this, what's going on here in, in uh, Oxford, Connecticut, Ben, tell us about the, the tank program and, and why you guys went from you know, importing kegs to uh, shipping in these tanks. Tell us a little bit about you know, what's special about them and, and why you think this is better for the beer. Well, when we, when we first started, we... We just shipped empty kegs around the world, and they would be filled by the breweries, and you know they would have the responsibility of cleaning them, filling them, and sending back to us. The first issue you have, it's much harder to keep track of 5,000 kegs than it is five tank containers. So, you know that's already logistically more difficult. But then in terms of quality, there's also a huge difference. I mean, keep in mind the born on date on a keg starts when it's filled, and on a tank container, when it's transported here, it's basically like four brewery maturation tanks that are glued together and temperature controlled. They then get filled at the brewery, it gets lifted up onto the ship, and it comes across. And not only does that allow us to get fresher beer that's a better quality, but it also shortens the time that it takes to actually get here. So if, if the brewery fills it in the U.K., it only takes nine, nine days to get from the U.K. from filling to here to when we can start filling kegs on our side. Germany is about 14 days, and then Japan is the furthest, which is about four weeks. Whenever you're transporting liquid, the best way you can do it quality-wise is to get the largest volume you can transport at one time, because then you have the, little, the smallest amount of headspace and the, little, the smallest amount of oxidation can possibly take place. And then on, on top of that, we, it's also temperature controlled the whole way. So you're basically... It's the virtual equivalent of it sitting in the brewery's maturation tank till it gets filled in here. And that allows us to get much fresher, higher quality beer. And then on top of that, it al- we've been able to kind of take over the quality control aspect for a lot of our breweries. A lot of other breweries we deal with are tiny. And they don't have a full-scale lab, which we do here. And we do all the sugar analysis. We do all, all the uh, yeast analysis. We pitch and repropagate yeast, and we make sure that, that we're trying to get as much data as we can on all these products so we can treat them properly. And the brewmasters give us the exact specifications, what they want done in terms of the, the sugar they want added, the type of yeast they want to be pitched in there, and how much carbonation should be in the beer when it's finished. And that's really helped us to get these things more under control. That's great. I mean, I, when I first heard about it, it was about four years ago you started the tank program? We started four years ago in, in, in 2010. And one thing Ben mentioned that's really an important thing for everybody to know. Everybody's concerned about beer and oxidation in beer. I mean, one of the key metrics here is the ratio between the surface area and, and the volume. So in, in a small bottle, 11.2 ounce, a smaller bottle, that ratio is very unfavorable. There's a lot of, relatively speaking, surface area where air, oxygen can tackle the beer versus the volume. In a big tank container, we have each tank container is divided into four independent compartments. Each one is temperature and pressure controlled. In each one, there's 35 hectoliters, like 32 U.S. barrels in there, a little headspace. There is virtually no risk whatsoever of any oxidation taking place because of that 
uh, ratio, um, which is very, very favorable. So very, very important to us, one of the things we looked into. When we moved into the 10-container concept, because it's really, we are the only one doing it worldwide, um, we... We had virtually we had toasting the next beer. Wonderful. <laughs> we had virtually no idea about it. So we looked outside the industry. The industry that really fascinated us were two. One is the dairy industry. When you when you Connecticut, a lot of farmland. There are a lot of um, tanks, um, tank uh, trucks are running around with dairy products in it. Um, you also, when you go down to Florida, you see a lot of tanks filled with orange juice, unpasteurized orange juice, and this for us the benchmark. Unpasteurized orange juice, to ship unpasteurized uh, orange juice is the most difficult thing there is because I think you have a temperature range of two degrees Celsius within you have got to stay. If you miss that, the orange juice will spoil. So um, we looked into that industry. We got very lucky in finding people that that, that had experience in, 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 the, in, in that industry with tank containers. Um, and we talked to them, and um, and, and we, we, we had really deep discussions about it. And, um, and we com- then we eventually decided that's the way to go. If, if people can manage orange juice, then we should be able to manage beer. Beer is much more protected, alcohol, and all of that. Um, the next thing was obviously finding a manufacturer that was able to, to, to manufacture that. It has never been done before. And we found a fantastic manufacturer in UK, you see, in, in, in Western Europe. Um, that's a very... Uh, usually manufacturing is not so much done in Western Europe anymore. It's too, it's too expensive, and they, they farm it out to, to other countries. Um, just shows you that this type of manufacture is, requires high skill a high skill set and the, the manufacturer is located in uh, close to Manchester and we have by now we have seven temperature control tank containers and they are traveling around the world and actually this afternoon we have a new one coming in from Japan Hitachino filled with white ale and unbuy the plum wheat and commemorative ale and we have one empty out there being picked up this afternoon and that will go back to Italy so when you get the tanks in uh, Ben just walk me through one more time because I'm trying to understand you know how the beer gets because this is like a very special place. It's, it's you, you've got some you've got some warehousing here. You, I, I saw all the great bottles that I love, Uriga, Doppelsticka, and there's so many great beers that you guys have. Um, so the tanks are coming in. What, what are you going to do next with that? Well, the, the first thing we do is we, we don't do anything too fast. <laughs> you first take your time, and the first thing that that really happens is that Rob pulls he checks that every single compartment, the pressure and the temperature, and then he starts pulling samples of every single beer. And the first thing we do is we really do a quality control check of everything. Of course, just sensory tasting is part of it, but then from there on, we measure the sugar levels, then we do yeast counts, pH is a good indication if something went wrong. Usually it's, it, it's within a range, but it, you can very quickly tell if something went wrong. And then from there, we also pull some, some samples where we do uh, biological tests for infection and so forth against wild yeast and uh, souring bacteria. That's really the first thing we do. And then what we do is we check the data we get from there and we check it to past batches we've had of every beer. And we compare to make sure that everything is in line. And then from there, it comes down to the beer. If the, if the beer is finished and ready to go, we can just go ahead and fill it into kegs. If it needs a secondary fermentation, then whatever yeast the brewmaster spec, whether it's in the tank itself or whether we have to purchase one, we repropagate that yeast. And then from there on, we would transfer it into one of our holding tanks where we, where we add in the yeast and we would prime it with the specific sugar that the brewmaster wants. Then we mix it all up to be homogeneous and then we fill it into kegs. And that, that's pretty much the procedure on all these beers. There are some exceptions. For example, Tipo Bills from Birficio Italiano, he actually sends us the hops on the tank container, and then we dry hop it for, for three to five days in tank prior to, to kegging. Uh, Nuova Matina, which is actually going to be released tomorrow, he asks us to dry spice it. So we actually have to go out and procure the spices that we then make the various spice bags of. And so we then... We make the spice bags and we heat it up in liquid to 80 Celsius to make sure everything is sanitary. And then we add that into the tank and then the beer comes on top of it and then it sits there three to five days. Until we taste it, until it's taken up enough of the spice character, and then we would fill it into kegs. Wow, it's, it's really amazing. And, and, and people can come here too, right? You have tasting hours? Now, we're open every Saturday, 12 to 7. 
And we're, we're going to add some weekday hours in August, uh, Friday after work. That's terrific. And what's the, the other OEC beer you just poured for us? second one, it's called Novo. It's what, it's a Cezanne-style beer, and this is what we call a blended dry hop Cezanne. So it combines two of our, our house Cezannes that we blend with a little bit of old Cezanne that we have as well. It's about 6%, and then we dry hop it. And it, it, it's one of what we call a blended-style beer. So over time, different blend numbers will have slightly different characteristics, but but the main theme stays the same. So Novo, our dry hopped one, it's not like it'll ever be overly sour in that sense. It does have Bretonomyces in it, and it will go funky over time. And we we will play around with the various hop combinations for different batches. All right. Hey, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. So you like good beer. Whether you're a craft beer pro or just had your first sip of an IPA, GreatBrewers.com is your number one beer resource on the Internet. GreatBrewers.com bridges the gap between the world's great brewers and the consumers who enjoy their products. With so much information and misinformation out there, GreatBrewers.com focuses on education and leaves no stone unturned. Take the Great Beer Test on their website and browse through an extensive product catalog. Download their mobile beer cloud app, which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit GreatBrewers.com today. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. We're doing a special recording in Oxford, Connecticut. We're kicking off July Good Beer Month. Uh, you can listen to this on July 1st, uh, 2014. Jimmy Carponi from Jimmy's Number 43. And the Good Beer Seal here with Mateus and Ben and John Lumbaum at uh, Be United and the OEC Order of the Eccentric Boilers in Oxford, Connecticut. Okay, so John, we, we're, we've sat through two, two segments so far. We've tasted a couple of uh, Ben's OEC beers. We're talking about historical beers. We're talking about the special programs of Be United. Uh, what do you want to say about the tasting so far? Uh, this We've been brewing here for three months, four months, something like that? Four months. Yeah, so four months. This is my second time tasting the uh, OEC beers. Um, some of them, like the Berliner Weiss, uh, brew fairly quickly. Some of them, like this uh, the Novo Saison, we're having uh, being a blend of two different beers, one of which is barrel-aged, takes considerably considerably more time to produce. Um, and I would have no doubt that the beers would be excellent, but they're really excellent and really special. And although I have nothing to do with it, um, I do feel a certain amount of pride in what my company is doing. We're drinking it. And uh, so, Matthias, you were saying something about the, the yeast that you're using? Well, it's a big controversy in our, in our company right now because we are not allowing any OEC product to, uh, to be sold through our sales team uh, in, in their market. So they, 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 um, it's, again, it's, it's, it's kind of a... Not controversy, but it's a kind of a fun uh, discussion we are having right now. Any OEC beer can only be tasted at our tasting room, um, which is open Saturdays and, and, and starting August in, in and on Friday afternoons as well. But the thing here is we we want to be known, or OEC wants to be known for specific styles, but we don't want to create a kind of a... Um, our house character. Um, one of the things we are doing here is um, we are basically not using any commercial yeast. Um, any yeast we are using is is a wild yeast strain, either um, uh, um, isolated from the from our uh, orchard, uh, from our peaches or raspberries or gooseberries or, um, and other fruits. Uh, we have a lot of citrus fruits here. Uh, citrus trees here, um, all cultivated, and we are very proud of that, cultivated from our very complex rheumatoid projects. Um, and they have highly complex wild yeast strains, and we are in touch with Fritz Bream, um, um, who is an expert in, 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 in yeast um, cultivation, um, and uh, he's coming actually to, to our place in, in July um, to work with us. Um, so these are things that we that's, are... That's exciting. You know, know Dr. Fritz Green's been in his 1809 Berliner Weiss. He has Groditsky, Gruet. So he's been making some historical beers. Let's jump ahead because so, so Ben here with OEC, yeah, um, talking about historical beer styles. Remember last year I, I asked you if you had any historical beer styles and you mentioned Dr. Fritz Bream and, and, and a few others. Um, Italer, you know, it seems like a lot of your German portfolio yep. are, are, are traditional 
beer styles. Let's just jump to what, what you're doing here in the system, because this is pretty fascinating. It's actually the reason I came out here today. I wanted to see your, your 19th century historical uh, beer system. Tell us a little bit about that and why you wanted to, to work with this system. Yes, yeah, so, so, so the system goes back to the name, so Order of the Eccentric Boilers. One reason we call it an order is because it's not just us involved in this project. There are really many people. For example, one of them is Fritz Bream, Jerome Rebetay, is heavily involved from BFM. Chris, and, and Chris from the Dole one is very interested to be involved. And one of the things we wanted to create was a project where it's not just an, a standard brewery that everyone has, but something... John, are you going to bring me some samples of the Dola Extra Stout soon? <laughs> uh, maybe not the Reserva. <laughs> Love it. No, and so we, we wanted to create something that would really create unique flavors and aromas. And the only way you, you can do that is by by making something that's out of the ordinary. And so what did we do? We went back to history and we, you know, we sent the ideas, we bounced them back and forth with a number of these brewers and we said, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think? Let's get rid of the Whirlpool. We mostly want to brew with whole cone hops anyway. Let's get rid of that. Instead, let's add in a cool ship. And so what we've actually ended up with... You do have a nice cool ship. I mean, it's beautiful. It is a big piece of copper, yeah. (laughs) It's made of copper. And I think... Some breweries in the United States have cool ships, but they usually stay in the steel. Copper it's, has a very, very has a tremendous fu- function. Obviously, it, it it heats up much. It's much hotter copper, and also adds uh, caramelizes the, the the sugars. So it has a, a tremendous function in, in the brewing. And Chris of Didol, for instance, he has a. a, a, a open cool ship made of copper and he was a big big proponent of us doing the same thing well what, what are some what are some of the things that you're doing with this brewing why you have why you design the system that makes it historical so so one of the things i really enjoy and i think matthias and everyone at be united including john is some of the historic methods that were used to produce very rustic and characterful beers and that's what we built into this brew house so it's really a brew house made for old mashing techniques. And what are we talking about, old mashing techniques? We're talking about a lot of decoctions, turbid mashes, sour mashes, those types of things. That's really what it's built for. We got rid of the whirlpool because that's useless for that. Instead, we have a mash kettle slash boil kettle and then a lauder ton. So what we, what we usually do is that we actually mash in in that mash kettle and we go to the first temperature stage, but then you start transferring. And part of the mash sits in the, the lauder ton and then another part of the mash goes into that, back into that boil kettle. And you heat it through various temperature stages and then up to boiling. And you reintroduce that and you do that several times. And that creates a lot of body, a lot of graininess, a lot of maltiness, and a lot of complex sugars. Our goal isn't to brew for maximum efficiency to get as much sugar out of a piece of grain as possible. Rather, it's to create really complex flavors and also complex sugars that the wild yeasts like to eat over time. And to create a beer that's not thin with wild yeast is extremely complicated. And so you have to use these techniques to really bring in lots of character into it. Wild yeast can get very out of control very fast and can eat all your sugars out and you're left with a watery beer in the finish. And that's really what we're trying to avoid. So we're using a lot of these historic techniques. Very interesting when you use when the beer when the wort comes flowing into the open cool ship um, and then cools down and then it runs down the the French Baudelaire cooling system, which um, again Christophe Didol uh, really wanted us to do. And when you when you see the beer and afterwards it's full, totally full of oxygen, uh, and and uh, and everybody seems uh, paranoid about it. Um, but it's a fant- and then you transfer it in our open fermenters. It's a fantastic medium for yeast to become very, very active. Obviously, yeast needs uh, oxygen uh, to become active, and it's, 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 it's all the yeast we are using there are, are becoming very, very active. Another thing is that we installed in, as an open fermenter is a fermenter made of concrete. Con- concrete was historically used because that was the material available. No brewery uses it anymore, as far as we know. Some vineyards are still using it, and concrete, compared to stainless steel, has significant features that makes it very unique. The material is much more porous, so it will allow um, air, oxygen, to come through. Stainless steel does not allow that. Um, it's difficult, though. It's challenging, though, because the material is colder than you always believe it is, so you have got to figure out um, which temperature the yeast needs in order to, to, to do the fermentation, and it's, it's, it's quite, quite difficult. How do you think, before people had, you know, it was like, uh, what are they called? S- excuse me, guys. Uh, gauges and 
uh, ways to measure, you know, degrees like thermometers and things. Yeah. That that was a technological innovation from around 1800 or so, yeah, something like right. that. H- how are they making beer before they were able to, to, to have these? What, what are those things called? They're tools. They're yeah, so trial and error. And that's really like where the old mashing techniques come in. So like if you're looking at decoctions or, what, or, or even the grain they added and then the hops they added, they really did it in kind of like, let's say, buckets. Buckets or let's say I take a third of something or I take a half of something. So like a decoction, you usually take about a third and you pull off. And then if you bring that back, by accident, you hit that right next temperature. And that's what they kind of learned over time. And so now, of course, you know, this is, ours is a historic system, but we also, it's partially computer controlled, which makes it easier. But it's amazing. I know, I was so disappointed you have computers. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but, you know. I thought you'd have, like, open fires and. We, you know, we, 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 fire. we bring out Kindle from outside and we light it up and we try and hit our temperatures. No, but, but it's amazing. You know, the do- I think the dog brings the wild yeast in, right? That, that's right, absolutely. But how, how do you get this? So at what point do you introduce wild yeast? So they just, they're just in the air or do you actually have to, to put something from so, a grape in there? So we, we have a number of yeast strains that we keep in-house. And some of them are pure brewing yeast strains that we've actually isolated off barrel aging projects or even fruits, believe it or not. You actually get some true brewing yeast off it. And then we have some of those that we isolated off both of those that are actually wild yeast, kind of Brettanomyces. And then we have a couple kind of yeast slurries, which are, which are mixed strains. And that will evolve over time. They have a little bit of lactobacillus. They have a little bit of acetobacter. They have a little bit of Brettanomyces and a little bit of brewing yeast. And those kind of evolve, and we refresh those over time to keep them in line. But we use them differently at different points during the fermentation to bring in various characteristics. So what's the next beer we're drinking? This is Tempest. This is another Saison brew. What we do in terms of Saisons is Saisons vary so much. So we have a full line, and they vary from bitter and hoppy. Two very sour. So we, the first one we tasted is our, our most hoppy one, Novo. This is our most sour one. And in history, White Ale, Lambics, and Saisons were all kind of very differently or very similar and brewed with similar techniques. And then Saisons even had a tendency to be blended back with, with Lambics. And this is our interpretation of that. So not, not much bitterness, quite a bit of citrusy. Acidity, fruitiness, grapefruit in the finish. It's pretty aggressive on the on the nose in terms of even acetobacter, a tiny bit of nail polish, mm-hmm. quite a bit of sourness, but I think very refreshing for 5.9%. I think if, if, you know, July's coming up in August, I definitely would come out here to Oxford, Connecticut to visit the OEC on a Saturday for the tasting room. So what's my experience? I'm sitting here at a table. It's a beautiful room. You can see the historical brewing system, the cool ship through the window. I bet Jeff O'Neill from Peekskill is jealous of your cool ship. He came to our, our opening three weeks ago, and obviously he's a fantastic, an absolutely fantastic brewmaster, and we were humbled by him coming and, and, and checking at our, uh, and, and, and tasting some of our beers. And, and, um, and he obviously had, had uh, Ben Spalino, Vice at the Exilis, and, uh, and uh, Jeff Simple Sour is obviously a fantastic um, uh, example of that style. Um, so um, it's, 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 um, it, it has been great. And again, we, we opened Saturday. And um, and another thing that is important to us, look, we have our cemetery uh, um, barrel aging area down there. We have a little barn over there. You, I, I don't think you've seen it yet. We have a, we bought a smoker. So when, when our wooden barrels are exhausted after the second or third use usually, we completely dismantle them and take the staves and take them down there to our smoker and use those um, cemetery barrels to, to, um, as, as, as wood to smoke um, our own barley malt or beet malt, whatever we use, and that goes into some of the beer styles that, that, ben, that ben creates. So it basically closes the entire circle uh, what you're doing. Let's end on that note because I always knew you for your, your Schlenkler beers and, 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 and for a long time there were no other smoked beers available in the States and now people are using smoked malts. Historically, what was the role of, 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 of smoking malts? Well, so, so when you're malting, you, you, have to, you have to moisten the grain or called steeping, right? And, and then 
that that allows the enzymes to start working and converting some of the starches to to sugars that can then be break it, broken down later on in the brew process. The only issue is you have to stop that process. If you don't stop that process, you just end up with a new plant. And your goal isn't to end up with a new plant. You, you want to use them all. So then you, you have to stop that by drying it out. And so historically, one of the few ways you could really do it is over open flame. You know, we, they didn't have modern kilns yet. And so at one point or another, almost every, almost every beer was smoky. Of course, there are exceptions to which they l- later learned to actually air dry malt. And so one, one of the first exceptions to it, and it was actually one of the mo- most exported beers at the time, was during the, the 1300s, was actually Bach beer out of Einbeck, which was a very different style than what Bach m- moved to later on in Munich. But Bach, Bach in the 13th century was light-colored, very hoppy, all air-dried malt, a, th- a third, 33% wheat malt. And uh, that was very popular. It only died out because the Hanseatic League fell apart. But then over time, they, they figured out how to make lighter and lighter malt. But before then, basically everything was smoked. Well, you're awesome. But we're going to have to definitely come back and talk about beer history. John, you want to say anything? Uh, no, I, was, I would only add that we're mentioning Akshlankerla. I mean, his, as Matthias Trum from Akshlankerla says, historically all beers would have been smokier than they are today. Eventually, most breweries moved to getting their malt from commercial malting houses. Schlenkele is special in sort of the great guardian of smoke beer because they never stopped. They've been doing the same thing since the 1400s. So they smoke their own malt. Yeah, they, they smoke their own yeah. yeah. They have their own malting company, their own malting equipment. They, they malt in-house. In, in, in and I have asked Matthias, the owner and brewmaster, why they never moved away from it. And he kind of laughed and said, okay, Bamberg is in the northern part of Bavaria. Um, not so densely populated, and he said, you know, where we live, where people live, we are very, very, um, not narrow-minded, but we are very, how do you say, strong-headed, right? <laughs> and stubborn, right? And so this is how we had done things all the time. Everything over open fire, it was always dark, it was always smoky, and then people came and, and, and from, you know, they invited the Pilsner Malt, and from the Czech Republic, and everybody went crazy, and they said, to help with it, we stick with what we have because we love it and we will not change it. And, and 150 years later, he's still doing it in, in, in an incredible way. So it's a, it's just a mindset, you know, um, that that keeps um, that keeps brewing, uh, keeps breweries doing the same thing over and over. Uh, and, and great things uh, will come out of it. It's 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 wonderful to see. I think you guys are definitely you know opening a new door to, to what beer really could be. A few years ago, there was a New York Times. Uh, uh, magazine article. It was about you know history of food and what what people eat. And Mark Bittman posted a little photo of uh, breakfast through the ages. And it was like 1812 or 1820. It was like breakfast was leftover roast and leftover pie. And even by 1850, that your eggs came with packaging. So it kind of went from packaging to processed food to dry cereals. And and a thought went off in my head. I was like, wow, I should ask people was beer different, you know, before there was packaging and processing. And not that many people knew, and you, you're one of the, the, the few importers that's really dealing with historical styles, and it's nice seeing what you're doing. I've, I've met a few other brewers in the city with so many great new breweries in New York City that, that are trying to do some sour mashing. So I think that um, this is a, a good conversation to have again. And I would say, hey, it's July Goober month. It's time to learn about beer. Go out to Oxford, Connecticut. Go to Dirk the Norseman in Greenpoint. Go, go to uh, Finback out and. uh you know, Glendale, Queens, there's so many great things to do uh, in July in New York City and around. So thanks, everybody, for coming on. Uh, again, check us out, goodbrewseal.com. You can learn more about uh, July Gooper Month. There's so many great events coming up. And, again, thank you to Mateus and Ben and John. I'm out here at Be United in the OEC. And thanks to our sponsors, greatbrewers.com. We do so much for beer. And, uh, again, checking to our producers, Maggie Side and Justin Kennedy. And today, Astrid Cook, thanks so much, and our engineer, Jack Inslee. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Thanks for listening to this program. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501 c 3 To donate and become a member, visit our website. Thanks for listening.